You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, it is a pleasure to be back with you and to uh, have the, the privilege again of preaching the Word. Um, Cindy was in the first service. She heard the sermon, decided that wasn't that good, so she left. Uh, no, actually, she's, uh, she's reading a book called um, Mama Bear Apologetics. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's a great book. She's leading a, uh, a class for young parents in our church this, this fall on how to protect your kids from the... Uh, just the world around us, the craziness that's going on in our world. And so she's working on that, I think, at Tim Hortons. <laughs> having a coffee and actually having a tea. Um, but it's sure, sure nice to be back here and just to see a bunch of uh, old faces and uh, people that we got to know and love over the last uh, year and then see a bunch of new faces. I know that God's been blessing your church and uh, growing and new, new families are coming in, which is really exciting. And so... Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting some of you after church. I'm excited that you are going to be moving into your new building real soon. That's, that's so exciting. And uh, if for no other reason, I'd love for you to invite me back just so I can preach once in that church. That would be a real, a real thrill. Um, and also, so I, I don't know where Shane is. Are you here this morning, Shane? He may, he, uh, he may be off, but man, was that uh, crazy what happened to Shane? Like what, what some people will do for attentions ridiculous. I just remember praying for that guy and, and, and reading the posts on Facebook and just watching, kind of like sitting there just really asking God to intervene, and he did. He answered our prayers, and uh, Shane is on the way to recovery. So that's such a blessing. It was such a journey that you went through, and I know that, that Shane has been just so, so blessed by the love and the support and the, just the, the way that you have stood with him and his family over these, um, these couple of really difficult months. So so I want to begin this morning by, by asking you a question. First of all, I want to make a confession. Uh, I am a worry wart. I, I tend to worry. And so I want to ask just by show of hands, how many of you are prone to worry? Let me see just by show of hands, the worry warts. Man. So I know something about this church. I know that there's about 20% of you where they're honest and about 80% of you that are not. Because... Because I think one of, the, one of the qualities of the human condition, because of our fallenness, is that we worry. We, we get stressed out. Uh, some of us are more prone to it than others. I, I admit that I'm that guy who wakes up around 3 o'clock in the morning. If there's something on my heart, if I'm dealing with an issue, I tend to wake up about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'll begin to toss and turn. Uh, I'll get out of bed sometimes. I'll, you know, my hands get a little sweaty. My heart beats a little bit, and, and I just sort of fret, and I get anxious where, where I shouldn't be anxious. And I know that a lot of people are like me. Uh, maybe you're sitting here right now, and uh, you're thinking about a situation. You're worrying about a situation. It may be one of your kids. It may be a health issue. It may be a financial issue. It may be an issue at work. It may be a relationship. Um, the, the things that we worry about are, are as diverse and as unique as we are. Uh, it could be our culture. You look at what's going on in our culture, and we just you know, I, I tend to worry about what's happening in Western society and where we're going as a, as a culture. 
You look at the political, geopolitical situation around the world, and that is a reason for us to sort of worry and, and, and be concerned. And there's a lot of things that can perplex us. And here's the thing. We know that we shouldn't worry. We know that it's foolish. We know that the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, and yet we worry. We know that the Bible says that we should take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And somehow, some way that we can't quite figure out, when we do that, a little while later, that thought gets free again. It escapes, and it comes back to haunt us. One of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible for me as a worrier is Psalm 3, verse 5. And it says this, I lay down and slept, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And you say, to you, you say to yourself, well, Paul, why is that such a wonderful verse? Why is that so meaningful for you? And I'll tell you the reason. It's because the context in which King David spoke those words. King David wrote those words um, just after he had, been, he had fled from Jerusalem. His son had usurped his throne, essentially. He had proclaimed himself king. And now his son Absalom was looking to kill his father. He had violated David's wives on the roof of his palace, and now he was seeking to kill his father. And so David, along with about 600 of his most loyal soldiers, some friends and some servants, fled Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 15 tells us that as David was leaving, he was weeping, his head was covered, his feet were bare, and he was being cruelly mocked as he left the city. Could you imagine how David felt in that instance? Could you imagine the anxiety, the fear, the confusion, the hurt, the rejection? All of it was just churning in his soul. And he flees. His son is trying to kill him. His friends have abandoned him. He is humiliated. He is heartbroken. He is confused. And I'm sure that he was, in some respects, worried. But that night, it's, the Bible tells us that he sleeps by the Jordan River. He sleeps. So I want to read the psalm with you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 3. Let me read for you from verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Now that psalm was written by a man who refused to allow worry and fear and stress and anxiety to control him. It was written by a man who had obviously found peace in one of the most painful, one of the most difficult circumstances of his entire life. I can't think, I don't think that any of you could paint a picture for me about the circumstances of the, your life that would match this. None of, us have, uh, uh, none of us have our sons trying to kill us. None of us have had our lives completely overturned the way David's life was overturned in this instance. 
None of us have gone through what David went through, and yet in this huge storm, in this tumult that he was going through, David found peace that allowed him to sleep. And so the question we have to ask ourselves if we're going to really understand this passage of Scripture is this, how is it possible? How in the world was this man able to put his head on a pillow at night and fall asleep in the wilderness knowing everything that was going on around him, knowing that his life was in danger, that his entire world had collapsed all around him? How was it that he was able to put his head on a pillow and fall asleep? And the question we ought to answer as well is, what is it that David knew that will allow us to fall back to sleep at three o'clock in the morning? What was it that David knew that will allow us to deal with the anxieties and the fears and the stresses and the worries that assault us in our journey? Because we don't want to minimize, we don't want to trivialize the things that happen to us. We encounter difficulties in this life. Man who was born of woman, Job tells us, is short-lived and full of turmoil. That's, that's life. It's hard. And we are going to, if we're not right now facing difficulties, we will inevitably face difficulties and hard circumstances. So how is it that we can live victorious Christian lives? How is it that we can know the peace of God in those kind of circumstances? I think one way is for us to study the life of David. So how did David overcome worry? First of all, David found perspective. Let me read verses 1 through 3 for you again. And notice how he repeats this word, many. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me, and many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for God in him. There are many foes, many rising against him, and many people saying many things. But essentially what they're saying is, David, your goose is cooked. You're done. There is no hope. There is no salvation for you and God. There's no way out of this. David, it's over. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Many people were saying many things, and David had heard many things. A messenger had come to him just recently and said to him, David, the hearts of the men of Israel are now with your son Absalom. Now that would have cut to the quick. David had been king for probably about 35 years. He had had the loyalty of the men of Israel for all of that time, and now they had abandoned him, turned from him. Another messenger had come and said, David, your trusted advisor and your dearest friend, Ahithophel, is now with Absalom, your son. That would have hurt. David had heard all kinds of things. The day that he was leaving, the day before he wrote the psalm, as he was leaving Jerusalem, he met a guy named Shammai who cruelly mocked him as he was leaving Jerusalem. Shammai was a relative of the previous king, King Saul. And this is what Shammai says. The Lord says to David, the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And then he says this, See, David, your evil is on you, for you are a man of bloodshed. And personally, of all the things that the many had said to David, I think that would have cut deepest what Shammai said that day when he was leaving Jerusalem. And the reason I say that is is because of what transpired in the life of David a number of years before this, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and, and conspired to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered. You'll remember that Nathan the prophet came to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 
uh, 12 and, and confronted David about his sin. And David confessed his sin and he wrote Psalm 51. It's a beautiful psalm of confession and reconciliation with God. But listen to what the prophet tells David is going to happen as a consequence of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. This is from 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. Now therefore, David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, David, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So in as well as all of those other things that David was hearing from all of those other people saying, David, it's over. I'm sure that within David's mind, there was that little voice saying to him, David, you're getting what you deserve. David, it's finally caught up to you. What the prophet said was going to happen is now happening, and the sword is not going to leave your house. And I'm sure David was thinking to himself as he was listening to that little voice, he must have been thinking at least on some level, it's in, in some time during that day before, God has abandoned me. There's no hope for me in God. There's no salvation for me in God. It's all over. I brought this upon myself. God said it was going to happen, and now I'm going to suffer the consequences of my sin. I was guilty, and now I'm going to suffer. Many were saying... David knew what the opinion of the many was. There's no hope, David. It's over, David. Many foes, many rising against me, many saying. David knew what public opinion was. He knew, he knew that he had a lot to worry about. But here's the thing. David had selective hearing. David had selective hearing. And you know what selective hearing is, right? Especially if you're a parent, you tell your little one, I want you to go clean your room. Two hours later, the room's not clean. A little while later, you say, in a fairly sort of quiet voice, who wants ice cream? And that same kid is in the basement playing, like, you know, 10 or 15 yards away in the basement, and suddenly they're right there, because they heard, right? Selective hearing is not that you don't hear, it's that you choose to hear certain things. You choose to hear what you want to hear. And David had selective hearing. David knew what everybody else was saying. He was not unaware of all of the things that were being said about his situation. But David, instead of listening to what the many were saying, listened to God. He listened to God. And he says, I know what God says. God says that he is my defender. God says he is the, my glory and the lifter of my head. And so David chose in that moment, that moment of great anxiety, that moment of great stress, not to listen to what everybody else was saying, not to listen to what the majority was saying. He chose to listen to what God said. He got perspective. Instead of listening to what the many were saying, no matter how logical or how rational or how plausible it was, David listened to and focused on what he knew to be true about God. But you will order a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Brothers and sisters, this is so critical. It's so vital. If we're going to win the battle with worry, if we're going to overcome worry and live peacefully in a turbulent world, we need to get this straight. We need to get this perspective. David anchored himself 
in the nature and in the character of the God of Israel. He rooted himself, he anchored himself in who God was. This was his focus. This was his perspective. And as a result, he knew that what everybody else was saying didn't matter. It was trivial. It was inconsequential. The only thing that mattered to David is what God said. And what God said is that, David, I'm your glory. I'm your defender. And I'm the one who lifts your head. So much of the anxiety and the worry and the stress that we face is because we listen to what others say. We listen to the media. We listen to what our circumstances portend or foreshadow. We think about, we extrapolate out and we think about what could potentially happen. We listen to all kinds of people and circumstances. And instead of doing that, we need to listen to what God says. Instead of listening to that little, that little voice in her, our head that often says, oh, it's going to get bad, it's going to get worse, you deserve this, we need to listen to what God said. And David did that. David knew beyond any, of, any shadow of a doubt that he was loved and treasured by God. David knew his sin was forgiven. After he wrote Psalm 51, after he had confessed his sin with Bathsheba and the, the murder of Uriah, he had written Psalm 103. And he knew that God had taken his sins as far as the east is from the west. He knew that God remembered that sin no longer. He knew that God didn't relate to him through the lens of that sin, but he related to them through the lens of his unconditional love. David knew that no matter what was going to happen in the morning, even if he was going to have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he was not going to be afraid because the Lord was going to be with him. Because the Lord loved him. You see, David had that perspective as a foundation in his life. And it didn't matter what circumstances were saying, and it didn't matter what the media was saying, and it didn't matter what other people were saying, and it didn't matter whatever was going on. He was rooted, he was grounded in the fact that God loved him. That God had forgiven him. And that he was precious to God. David knew God as a loving Heavenly Father. The one who had, well, let me, you know, you've had situations when your little one has done something wrong, right? And they have, they have lied or they have done something and, they, and they're ashamed. And they know that they have sinned. And you get down on your knees in front of them like this and their head's down and they're feeling bad and there's tears in their eyes and you put your hand under their chin and you just lift their chin up. And they, those little eyes look into your eyes and you say to them, honey, What you did was wrong. But know this, God loves you. I will always love you. And there's nothing that you can do that will ever stop me loving you. You see, that's the relationship that David had with his God. He knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that he was accepted, that he was loved by God. And that perspective, getting that perspective, regardless of all the noise around him, was critical in helping him overcome his worry. What many people say to us, what circumstances say to us may be logical, it may be rational, it may be plausible, it may even be believable, right? But the only thing that matters is what God says. And we've got to have selective hearing. You know, Satan's purpose at three o'clock in the morning when he wakes you up and you start worrying is not to get you to have a bad night's sleep. You could really care less about that. 
What he wants you to do is to question the nature and the character of God. What he wants you to do is by your behavior, defame, besmirch, question the goodness of God. The character of God. Don't do it. You know, we will never know peace in the storms of this life until we settle this issue. God loves us. And God is good. God is good and God loves us. That is the foundational reality of our lives. And regardless of what circumstances, regardless of what's going on in our lives, that has got to be the perspective through which we see everything. Everything. No matter how difficult, no matter how tragic, no matter how catastrophic it might be, that is the lens through which we have to look at every situation. And that was David's experience, and that's got to be our experience. What does the Bible tell us? It tells us that as Christians, we are absolutely and unconditionally and eternally loved by a God who sent his son into this world to redeem us. That Christ came into this world to save us and that we are his treasured possessions, that he purchased us personally with the blood of Christ and that he has adopted us into his family, as I said in my opening prayer, and that we are loved. So if you really want to stop worrying, if you want to put an end to anxiety and fear, here's the key. First of all, get that as the perspective of your life. See the situation that is troubling you through that lens, and worry will begin to lose its hold. But secondly, there's something else. David prayed. I've done this sermon, so there's four Ps. It's really easy. We don't have it on the, on the, on the thing here. But it's, the first thing is perspective. You've got to get perspective. The second thing is you've got to pray passionately. Look at what it says in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I cried aloud to the Lord, and the Lord answered me. Now, I want you to notice something here. It doesn't tell us what David prayed. It doesn't tell us the content of the prayer. It tells us all about the nature of the prayer, but nothing about the content. And that's very intentional, because here David is just pouring out his heart to God. And the Spirit of God wants us to understand the nature of prayer. It's not about rhyming off certain issues. It's not about telling God all of the problems. It's about what's going on in our hearts. It's a cry from the innermost part of David. I'm sure it was accompanied by tears, and it was loud. God, I am in a terrible situation, and I need you now more than I have ever needed you in my entire life. But watch this. Notice this. His prayer didn't come first. Some pe sometimes people say the first thing you should do is pray. Well, that may be true. But sometimes before we pray, we need to get perspective. Before we pray, we need to take the word of God and remind ourselves about who God is. Remind ourselves about his nature. Remind ourselves about his character. Remind ourselves that we are absolutely unconditionally and eternally loved by God. Remind ourselves that he is our father. Remind ourselves that nothing happens in our lives except that it has been filtered through his loving, gracious care. Remind ourselves because when we do, then we can pray this way. Then, then we can pray this kind of prayer because this kind of prayer can only come from the heart of a man or a woman who is totally convinced that they are loved and accepted by God. Totally convinced that their sin is dealt with. You don't see David here creeping into the presence of God 
feeling guilty and, and, and ashamed. You don't see David here coming into the presence of God timid and diffident and quietly and feeling really uncomfortable. Man, this is a guy who bursts into the presence of his father and says, God, I ha- yeah, I've messed up, but man, I've got problems. I need you, and I know that you love me. I know that you are my glory and the lifter of my head. You are my defender. You are my shield. I can trust you. So help, help. There's no vacuous platitudes, no cliches, no empty words. This is a prayer of a man who knows that his sin is gone, who knows that God loves him, and he just rushes into the presence of God with his broken heart and his confusion and his bewilderment and his stress and his fear and his anxiety, and he just throws himself into the arms of his father. See, this is a prayer that's based not on the character or the, the wor- or the worthiness of David, but it's based on the character and the nature of God. You can't pray this way if there's any question about the fact that God loves you. You can't pray this way if there's any question about the fact that you belong in his presence. You can't pray this way with guilt or shame attendant. The only way that you can pray this way with a sense of boldness and a sense of just, God, help, is if you know that God is your Father and that you are loved, if you genuinely trust and rest in His nature and His goodness. I think this is the kind of prayer that Paul anticipates that we will pray in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. But in everything... By praying with thanksgiving, tell God, ask God, share it with God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding, all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've had people tell me that, that sin, it's, that, that worry is a sin. And in some respects, worry is a sin. It's part of our fallen condition. All of us, because we are fallen, we live in these human bodies, we live in these broken, this broken world, we are prone to sin. It's a natural, instinctive reaction. Paul, the apostle, worried. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he talks about how he is worried about all the churches. It's the same word he uses. Don't be anxious about anything in Philippians. And he says, I am daily concerned, worried about the churches. I think the sinful thing for us is to live in a state of anxiety, to live in a state of fear and worry. What is, what is sin, I believe, is to feel us being pulled into that place of worry and anxiety and fretting and stress and just live there instead of doing what the apostle tells us that we should do, which is pray. Don't live, so I think, so here's my unauthorized translation of Philippians 4, 6. Don't live in a state of anxiety. I think that's what the apostle was saying. Don't live in a state of anxiety, but in every circumstance by prayer, asking with thanksgiving, make your requests made known to God. Pray from the heart. Deep calls to deep. Call to God deep prayers from your soul. And what does God say he will do? Solve the problem, make everything better, Heal the disease, get you a new job, fix what's wrong in the geopolitical situation in our world? No. What God promises, and it is a promise, and we've got to sue God for it. We've got to 
Take this promise to the bank. What God promises us is peace in the storm. Peace in the storm. Now, he may take the sickness away, and he may resolve the situation. But in my experience, what God does for me is teach me about his goodness and his nature as I learn to be at peace in those circumstances that are hard, those difficult circumstances of my life. He promises to give us a peace that guards us, a supernatural peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard here is a military term, and it refers to a a guard, a, a group of men who stand guard at the entrance to a castle and prevent the enemy from coming in. That's what God promises to do for us. He guards us against worry, guards us against fear. Now, I haven't prayed like this many times in my life, but I have prayed it sometimes. And I'll tell you about one of those experiences. It was on August 20th, 1987. It was the one week after my first daughter was born. And at that time in my life, I was about 30 years old, I, I was an arrogant, very kind of proud, self-confident young man. I thought of myself as being omnicompetent. I was invincible. And I had taken upon myself all these responsibilities and all of these pressures. I, was, I had some surgery done on my nose to fix a broken septum. Um, I had left a church that I, I was going to another church and I was leaving a ton of really close relationships that I was grieving. Um, I, was, I had sold my house. I was having another house built and it wasn't going to be ready. I had a camp that I was directing and it wasn't coming together the way I wanted it to. And I had a baby. My wife had a baby. We brought this baby home. And I just got to clarify in our world today, I didn't have the baby because apparently men can have babies now, but so it wasn't me. Anyway, uh, we brought the baby home and put her in the bassinet and sent even out to do some shopping and get some stuff that she needed. This was a Tuesday. And I sat there and I, I'm looking at Ashley lying in the little thing and I started to feel strange. I started to feel all these emotions welling up in, within me. I started to feel this fear and all this anxiety. Something that I had never in my life felt before. My hands started to sweat. My heart began to beat. My body began to sweat. Fortunately, I was a very good friend of the doctor who delivered our girls. And so I phoned him and I said, Ken, I, I don't know what's going on. Something weird's happening to me. I told him what's going on. He said, okay, I'll, I'll come over after I close the office. So around 6 o'clock, he showed up at our house. And he talked to me a little bit and he took my pulse and did all those doctor things. And he says, I think you're having panic attacks, Paul. <laughs> no. You have no idea how competent I am, I, how, how invincible and indestructible I am. Like, I am just omnicompetent. Like, I, I can't be having panic attacks. But I was. And I kind of spiraled down into this black hole that night. I didn't know what to do. I, I couldn't sleep. I took, a, I took a mattress from our guest room upstairs, and I dragged it to the basement. And for the next three days, I was in the basement of our house. When the baby would cry, I would cry. The phone would go, would ring. I would, I would cry. Um, I, I was just an emotional mess. Ashley, it turns out, was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And God kind of broke me in that time. And by the way, just as an aside... 
I look back on that as one of the most valuable experiences I've ever had. I, I told people, and I still tell people, that I would trade any, any, any physical pain for the pain that I felt in that moment. It was, it was genuinely horrific pain. It was worse than anything I've ever experienced physically. Finally, on Friday morning, Cindy comes downstairs and she says, Paul, I've got to have help. But I should tell you, I should tell you, one of, the only thing that gave me a little bit of light in that black hole that I was in was Cindy would come downstairs holding Ashley in the Bible, and she'd read the Psalms. And the Psalms gave me a little bit of a reprieve from the blackness that I was feeling. But finally, on, on Wednesday, or Friday morning, Cindy comes down and she says, I need help. You, can't, you just can't lay here in the basement and cry. You've got to help me. And so I pulled myself out of the basement and I got into my 1987 Topaz. I'm a kind of a car guy, as I said in the first service. Not. And I sat in the car and I'm crying. And I looked at the seat beside me and I said, I said, Lord, if you are really who you say you are, I need you to show up right now. I can't cope. I don't know what to do. I can't deal with this. And, and I had no, I just went into the presence of my father Although I was messed up and proud and there was sin in my life in various ways, even though I was a pastor, pastors do sin, <laughs> I just went into the presence of my father knowing that I was loved and said, you've got to show up because I can't, I can't cope. I can't handle this. And he did. I drove from McCowan and Finch to Bayview and Finch and I get out of the, uh, Bayview and Shepherd. I get out of the car and I went into the mall and I noticed that I was singing a song. The song was How Great Thou Art. By the way, when you put How Great Thou Art with that last song, How Great Is Our God, they work beautifully together. I wanted to start singing it halfway through. But I was just singing that song, How Great Thou Art, How Great Thou Art. And it was just such a, like the sun came out for a moment. God just showed up in my experience for that moment. Now, it took me about six months to kind of get back on an even keel again. And God taught me so much in that time about my pride and my arrogance and my self-reliance and my self-sufficiency. Taught me so much about relying on Him and about grace through that dark, dark place in my life. But He showed up. That's the point. I prayed with a passion that I hadn't ever prayed with before based on the fact that I knew He was my dad, that He loved me, and that I could just burst into His presence and say, help me, Dad. Help me, Father. Help me, Abba. And he did. He did. But thirdly, not only did David get perspective, and not only did he pray passionately, he paused. He paused deliberately. So look at verse 5 again. This is the verse we started with. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Now, I'm sure that David had been busy all that day. He's fleeing Jerusalem. His life is imploding around him. People are trying to kill him. His son is raping his wives on the roof of his own palace. Like, you can't imagine a scenario worse than this. So David had had a busy day. He gets his little band of 600 men, which is no match for the thousands that were coming after him. He gets his friends. I'm sure he built a camp. He set sentries around the camp. But here's the thing. When there was nothing more that David could do, he did nothing. And that is so important for us to understand. When there was nothing more that David could have done, he did nothing. 
He stopped, he paused, and he went to sleep. Now, sometimes it's important for us when there are things that need to get done, it's important for us to do them. Like if we need to start exercising, if we need to stop spending money, if we need to see a doctor, if we need to ask forgiveness, you know, sometimes the circumstances are of our own making and we can do things to fix the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But here's the point. When there is nothing left to do, do nothing. My tendency, I'll tell you, as as a person, is when there's nothing left to do, that's when I really start to worry. Like, as long as there's something left to do, I can do it. I can get busy trying to fix what's ever going on. But when there is nothing left to do, I start to worry. And I'm, I'm the kind of guy, if you come to me and say, Paul, I'm really worried about this. I'm the kind of guy that says, hey, that's no problem. I'll worry with you. I'll help you worry. I'll carry some of that burden. We'll worry together, which is just, like, ridiculous. But that's who I am by nature in my fallenness. What we've got to learn to do, and you've got to see the cycle here, what we've got to learn to do is pause. But you can't pause. You can't be at peace until you get perspective and pray. I'm telling you, believe me. Get perspective. Under, look at your circumstance through the lens of God's grace and his love for you. Pray passionately. And then pause. When there's nothing left to do, stop, be still, and know that he's God. He will be exalted. He will do his thing. He will accomplish his purposes. He will change the character of a proud man. He will do what he is going to do through these difficulties, through this discipline that you're going through, if that's what he's doing. It will result in his purposes being accomplished. But when there's nothing more that you can do, just be at peace. The problem is, is that when we are not, we worry. And worry's killing us. Stress is killing us. You know the most prescribed, the three most, the most prescribed medications in North America are given for three things. The three things that result is, that are a result of stress in our lives. Mental illness, depression, gastrointestinal issues, and heart issues. The three most prescribed medications in North America are given to deal with the consequences of stress on the human body. It's killing us. But the wonderful thing here about David, he stopped, he paused, he rested, he was still. That's a beautiful thing. And that is God's gift to us. He grants sleep, he grants rest. But it's not until we get perspective, until we pray and burden our souls that we can stop. And there's nothing left to do, do nothing. When we worry, we're simply making a statement. It's an emotional, physical, spiritual statement that we do not believe that God is sovereign, nor do we believe that he is good. That's essentially what worry is. That's what, that's what anxiety in the heart of the Christian, that's the testimony of our lives, that God is untrustworthy, that he is not good, that he is not sovereign. And so like David, we need to learn that when there's nothing left to do, we must do nothing. So let's think about this together. We get perspective. We pray. And then we pause. I love what happens in the morning. 
I love what happens to David when he wakes up. Because this is what he says. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, and save me. For you, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. So David wakes up the next morning and he says this, I will not be afraid. Now he's not talking in you know, hyperbole here about the thousands of people who are surrounding him wanting to kill him. He's, it's, it's his reality. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of armed soldiers all now loyal to his son and their one focus is to get rid of King David so King Absalom, he can have the throne, an uncontested throne. So David wakes up that morning and essentially says this, I don't know what today holds. I got no idea what's going to happen today. But I know this, that I'm not going to allow fear, anxiety, and worry to control me. That's a powerful thing. I'm not going to allow fear to control me. So how did David banish fear? I think the next two verses give us a really, really clear understanding. The first thing he says, it's sort of a retrospective, and I think the New American Standard Bible interprets verse 7 a little bit better. It says this, Arise, O God, and save me, for you have. He's looking back. You have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have broken the teeth of the wicked. And then he says, in verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. David knew his life was testimony to the fact that God had saved him time and time and time and time and time again. When he was a young lad looking after sheep, God had saved him from the lion and the bear. When he stood in front of a nine-foot-six-inch giant, God had saved him as he defeated Goliath. When Saul was trying to kill him, throwing spears at him, God saved him. When, God, when David was being chased by 3,000 of Saul's most, most capable soldiers, God protected him and saved him. David's entire life to this point, and by this time in his journey, he is well into his 60s. David was, was absolutely convinced that it wasn't his military prowess or his winning personality or his intelligence or his ability to develop strategy that had saved him. David knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that he had been saved time and time and time again by the God of Israel. He knew that. And so he says when he wakes up in the morning, I'm surrounded by a thousand people, Lord, who all want to kill me, thousands of people who want to kill me. But protect me, O Lord, because I know you're my Savior. You've saved me in the past. You've saved me repeatedly in the past. You've gotten me out of situations that looked like there was no way to get out of, and you have been faithful. You are the God of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Near the end of his life, David wrote Psalm 116. And I want to read to you the first seven verses. This is what he says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me, the pangs of hell. I suffered distress, distress and anguish. I called on the name of the Lord, the Lord, O oh Lord, I prayed, deliver my soul. 
Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. When I was brought low, he saved me. And here's the verse I want you to see. Then he says this, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. See, David was able to look back on his life and he was able to see beyond any shadow of a doubt that God is the God of salvation. God saved him. And so he was able to say, because of that, return to your rest. Quit worrying. Quit stressing. Look back and see the goodness of God. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So return to your rest. Quit worrying. Quit worrying. And you know, the key, the, this is the key for us. It's praise. David praised God. You've saved me in the past. You're the God of salvation. I love you. I trust you. And this is the key for us. Never, never quit praising, never stop praising, never stop worshiping. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving somewhere. I listened to Ligonier podcast. If you, if you want something to listen to on a morning drive to work, listen to Ligonier podcasts. Um, Ligonier, R.C. Sproul, his ministry. It's just, it's a wonderful teaching ministry. You'll be blessed. So I'm listening to Ligonier Ministry, listening to Dr. Steve Lawson talk about total depravity. Total depravity is a theological concept that simply means that sin has infected every single aspect of our being. It's not, as, it's not that as, we're as bad as we possibly could be, but it means, total depravity means that we are completely infected by sin. Our will, our mind, our body, our soul, our spirit, everything. Sin has permeated every aspect of the human being. We're born in sin, as David said in Psalm 51. Sin has tainted every part of us. And I began to think about my own life before Christ. I began to think about what I was before Christ saved me. I began to think about how the Bible described me. I had a heart of stone that was impervious to the gospel. That was hard toward God. The Bible says I was an enemy of God. I was a rebel to him. God said, the Bible says, I love darkness more than light. I love unrighteousness and sin more than righteousness. The Bible says that my ears were deaf to the gospel. My eyes were blind to the truth. My mind didn't have the capacity to understand and receive the gospel. Paul calls that spiritual deadness. My heart was impervious to the truth and cold to God, as I said. I was absolutely spiritually insensate. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we, before Christ, are dead in our sin. It says it twice in that passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1. Dead in our sin. Completely dead. Dead is dead. Like, when you think about it, have you ever had a, a conversation where you've, you've said to somebody, I hear that Bill just died. I can guarantee you nobody has ever responded back. Is he completely dead? Is he 100% dead? Or is he 99, almost? He, he is, nobody's ever said that because you know what the definition of dead is, right? Dead is dead. And so what God did 
when you and I were dead in our sins, when total, when depravity, when sin had polluted every facet of our being and rendered us completely insensate to the gospel, what did God do? He made you alive. That's exactly the phrase that Paul uses. He resurrected you from the dead. Basically, the Spirit of God did for you what Jesus did for Lazarus. When Lazarus was lying in that tomb and death had completely subsumed him, Jesus spoke these words, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus woke from the dead and walked out of that tomb. That is a picture of what God did for you and for me. And he accomplished it through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Because God loved you, because God loved me, when we were dead in our sin and wanted nothing to do with him, when we were rebels to Christ, to God, he sent his son into this world. And Christ retraced the steps of his ancestor David. He came from the wilderness of Judea, up the backside of the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, through the Garden of Gethsemane, into the Kidron Valley, up into Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate, and he went to the cross because he loved you. He loved me. And on the cross, God vented his wrath for you on his son. The punishment that you should have spent eternity in hell paying for, Jesus took. And not only that, Christ gave you his perfect law-keeping righteousness. And that was attributed to your account. And then at some time and space, if you were a born-again Christian sitting here, if you are a new creature in Christ, at some point in time and space, because of what Jesus did on the cross for you, the Spirit of God made you alive. The Spirit of God took that heart of stone and did a miracle of grace and opened your heart and opened your eyes and opened your ears and unstopped the blockage in your mind and you saw what you would never, ever have seen. And you saw the gospel and you saw Christ and you believed by grace you were saved. And that's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of anything that you have done. Not as a result of works. Because we got nothing to boast in, right? It's all grace. So think about that. If that is what God has done for you, why in the world worry? If he has set his love on you and he has sacrificed his only begotten son in order to redeem you, and if he says that you are a treasure and he purchased you with the blood of his son, the precious blood of Christ, and he holds you in the palm of his hand. And he tells you that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why not let your soul return to that place of rest? Because the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For me, Romans chapter 8 is probably my Psalm 116. It's the passage of scripture that I go to when I'm feeling, feeling anxious, feeling tempted to worry, feeling a little overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. 
And it brings me back to that place where I am able to say, the Lord has dealt so bountifully with me. Return to your rest, Paul. Return to that place of rest and peace. So I praise and I worship God. And this is, this is the passage. Let me read it for you. What then should we say to these things? So, God, so Paul has just explained the gospel through Romans chapter, chapters 1 through this part in verse 8. He's just explained the magnificence of God's love for us. And now he says, how should we respond? What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously or freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, here's what everybody says. This is what many people are saying. For your sakes, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's true. Life is hard. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Return to your rest because you're loved. Return to your rest and be at peace because you're chosen and you're precious and you're valuable to God. Return to your rest because he loves you. It's so hard in this world in which we live, but the gospel is the only answer. The gospel is the answer to fear. It's the antidote to fear. Five little words, maybe six. No, four. <laughs> Five. First John 4, 8, 18. Five powerful little words. Perfect love casts out fear. The gospel is perfect love. And it's your perfect love. God has loved you unconditionally and beautifully and perfectly and exquisitely. And he will see you home. And there's nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth that will ever separate you from his love. So quit worrying. Return to your rest. Be at peace. How do you do it? You get perspective. Take the scriptures. Look at the circumstance you're going through right now through the lens of the scripture. And then pray. Not platitudes, not fancy words, just on your face before your father. Run into his presence. He loves you. And just unburden your soul. And ask that his peace would guard you. Ask for the supernatural, miraculous intervention of the Spirit of God in your heart. Not to fix all the problems, but to give you peace. And when there's nothing left to do, pause. Stop worrying. Be at peace. Be still and know that he is God. And then praise him. Think about what he has done in the past. Think about how he has saved you. Think about the redemption the cost of it, the genius of it, the beauty of it, the magnificence of it. 
Think about the consequences of it for your life. That one day you will stand face to face with Jesus. And you'll throw your arms around him. And they'll say, welcome. And it'll make all of the suffering of this world seem trivial and insignificant. You see, the, there is an antidote to fear. We need not live in fear. If we get perspective and pray and pause when we should and praise him, it's a cyclical thing. Just keep on doing that. Because praise brings you back to perspective, which leads you to prayer, which leads you to pause, which leads you to praise, which leads you to a better perspective. Just do that. And your life will be adorned by a peace. And people will say, why do you have that hope? Why do you have that joy despite everything that's going on in your life? And you'll be able to tell them about the hope that you have in Christ gently and reverently because you're not afraid. You're not afraid. Amen?